Welcome to the Excel Still More podcast. I am your host, Chris Emerson. I'm here to encourage you in your walk with God. Thank you for joining in. Today's podcast is sponsored by a wonderful company, Creation to Revelation. This group of Christians believe it is extremely important that we teach the Word of God to our kids. They have original graphic illustrations from the beginning of the Bible to the end, featuring the beautiful and consistent presence of Jesus throughout. You can explore all of that at creationtorevelation.com. I'm so thankful you're here, so let's get started. Hey, welcome to the final episode of 2022. This wraps up season four. I'm really excited about next year. Monday, January the 2nd, we start season five with some internal, personal focus on attitude. Even the slightest incremental attitude changes can produce exponential results in the world around you and in all of your relationships. But before that, we have one episode left here in the midst of the holiday season, and I thought I would mix in something a little bit different. Last week, I was interviewed by Kenny Embry, who hosts the Balancing the Christian Life podcast. He was asking questions regarding grace, and he interviewed both myself and one of my closest friends in the world, David Osteen. The format is super simple. Kenny asks direct questions, and then David and I independently give our answers. And while Dave and I are very close friends, you can tell early on that we approached the answers on grace from different perspectives. I felt like this created some nice depth to the conversation of grace, and of course, that's a topic we've dealt with a few times throughout this year. So I have included it here for you today, and I hope you find it helpful. Two quick thoughts before I send you to it. One, if you enjoy this interview format, check out Kenny Embry's Balancing the Christian Life. And two, I pray for you to be filled with grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I ask you to please pray the same for me. How you doing, guys? Doing great, man. <laughs> good, Kenny. Good to be with you, bub. It's good, always good to be with you guys. How would you conceptualize what grace is without using the words unmerited favor? The starting point of all grace is Jesus. Mm -hmm. When you look in the Gospels, you'll note that the word grace is not mentioned very often. In fact, it may surprise people to know the word grace does not appear at all in the book of Matthew, not at all in the book of Mark. One time in Luke chapter 2 and just a little bit at the beginning of John's Gospel. So mm -hmm. would we say that the Gospels have no grace in it? If we're looking for the word grace or unmerited favor or some of our language, the answer would be yes. But it has Jesus on every single page. And when you go to Luke 2, verse 40, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. When God intended to bring grace into this world, he brought it in the form of Jesus he placed it on him and in him, and it was preached through him. In John 1, the Word, which we know to be Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. And one more, and this is it. I just exhausted every grace verse in the Gospels. John 1, 17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Now, there are all kinds of multifaceted things that get built upon it, but Jesus is our cornerstone. He's mm -hmm. the beginning of everything upon which we stand and build. 
and God put grace in him. It's experienced through him. And right. if you want to know more about grace, go back to Jesus. I would use a different word, inheritance, because I think that's the way the New Testament conceptualizes the idea of grace for Christians. And I appreciate you asking for a concept versus asking for a definition. Right. Often how Jesus taught in concept, like when he was challenged, who is my neighbor? Then he tells a parable to right. convey the concept. I think that's what we see throughout the New Testament is our inheritance and how that's associated with grace. When you think of an inheritance, there is a benefactor, the person who is giving the inheritance. Mm -hmm. There's the inheritance itself. There is the beneficiary. That's the person who receives the inheritance. And then there's also, if you're talking about inheritance, there's last will and testament. That's the regulation the beneficiary receives the inheritance from the benefactor. And I think when we understand that concept as it relates to salvation in Jesus, I think we get the whole picture of grace aside from just what people often say today, unmerited favor. The Bible describes it <laughs> several different times. I would first sign Acts 26, 18, where Paul is talking about his ministry. And he says in verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Sort of a great summation of faith, grace, and the gospel all working mm -hmm. together. And of course, the forgiveness of sins could not happen without what Chris said, without Jesus. Right. Sometimes I use the same concept with a scholarship whenever I'm trying to illustrate it. You have the person giving the scholarship. That's the person who actually earned the money. A full ride to college these days costs... 15000 a year, more or less. Say you get a full ride for four years and somebody's going to pay that. You apply for a scholarship. You may list your merits. If you get $60,000 worth of scholarship, you did not earn $60,000. The person who earned $60,000 is the person who is giving the scholarship. Now, you may have qualified it according to their will, their testament, whatever it may be. And a lot of people may not qualify for it, right? Mm -hmm. But those who do qualify for it can apply and receive it according to that standard that was given by the benefactor. Same with the inheritance. You set up an inheritance, say you're like Kenny and going to leave millions of dollars to his kids. He gets to set up <laughs> how that's distributed, right? Right. You are the one who earned that money. They will be the ones who receive it by your grace, you don't have to leave them anything, but you can leave them something. Mm -hmm. And if you do, you can set qualifications on that. And if they meet those qualifications, they can receive the inheritance. If they don't meet the qualifications, they won't receive the inheritance. At the end of the day, if they receive the inheritance, they didn't earn the millions of dollars you leave them. You earn that. You're giving it to them based on them being qualified or not. Mm -hmm. And that's how we see that concept described throughout the New Testament. What is the controversy that surrounds what grace is? It's outward observation of the mistreatment of it in the religious world. If you go back and study John Calvin and Wesley and these things that led to this counter-Catholic kind of sovereignty of God business. I was reading a book the other day just to try to get some insight. John Piper has a book on the five points of Calvinism, and you read it, and he just misses plain logical concepts about the will of people, but he, he has no choice. He has to keep doubling down on 
yeah, but God did that for you. Yeah, but God made you do that. He can't leave it. And so he has to ride it all the way into the ditch. And it's sad to read. What we have to be careful of is the ditch on the other side. I get the religious world who believes in God and doesn't go to church, although that's changing in America. I think the belief is coming way down. And some of that's starting to level out in a way that the fruits are actually proving what the seed is. But we just have to be really careful with the controversy leading to controversy on our end where we become work-centric. It's kind of like studying John's gospel on belief. And what if we just taught on John's gospel for a month and it was full of belief? And I think people would say, you better be careful because too much on belief is going to effectively take away from obedience and works. And I know why they say that, because a lot of people do that. They just throw the works out, throw the obedience out. But what God is actually doing with grace is he's establishing this truth of how good he is and what he did before we were born and how far he has gone for us and what he will do. And we're supposed to believe that to the point where we'll do anything. And the obedience comes joyfully as a response to his grace, or at least as the invitation to it. So the sequencing of scripture is beautiful. I think a lot of the controversy is the religious world went way off to the side And we have a fear in us at times that we'll overdo it the other way. And we can do that. And so we need to recognize all that, be open about it, talk about it, but then just get back to the scripture and let God sequence the way faith is built. And I think that it's actually simple if we can do that without the baggage of mistreatment around us. Yeah, I completely agree. We have that tendency to overcorrect. And so if people talk about grace without bringing in our duties and responsibilities to it, then we're not hearing all that. And then we try to overcorrect and talk about the works that we should be doing Mm -hmm. because we are saved by the grace of God and because we're followers of Jesus Christ, the things we should be doing. And then people hear that and try to overcorrect back the other way and it's back and forth. But this is nothing new. It's not new to us even. I think this sort of controversy, you find it in the scriptures in places like, Galatians chapter three, where he's talking about how people were adhering to the law. For example, in chapter three, verse 18, he says, for if the inheritance is based on law, and if you understand inheritance and how that's associated with grace, it's no longer based on a promise, but God has granted to Abraham by means of a promise. Right. Back then, the Jews were having a hard time understanding grace in the gospel apart from the law of Moses. And so this controversy has been there from the beginning. Yeah. Same chapter, verse 24, knowing that from the Lord, you'll receive the reward of the inheritance as Lord Christ, whom you serve. So putting the focus where it's supposed to be, mm-hmm. we have a tendency to just see and hear grace in the word itself and not in the concept. And so there's a lot of places where in the Bible, we miss grace. Grace is all throughout the Old Testament. But yet a lot of times people don't think of grace as being a part of the Old Testament. But even going back to the promise of Abraham, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8, it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. So that's something he did. He did a work, right? He obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. That wasn't by his good work. That wasn't anything that he did. That was by the grace of God and by the promise of God. He went out, it says, not knowing where he was going. There's grace in the promises of Abraham. There's grace in Noah. There's grace 
to the Israelites all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, if we miss how it is stated conceptually throughout the scriptures, then we're going to be missing a lot of teaching about grace. I understand what you're saying, and I think you're exactly right, that when we go to the Old Testament, grace is all over that, but it's hard to find the word. But the concept of grace is just throughout the Old Testament. That said, I think part of the controversy that we have is that we can behave ourselves out of salvation. The idea behind that is falling from grace. What does it mean that we fall from grace? There's two extremes, is everything. It's if the truth is God building this pathway of building a life of obedience by faith in his grace, there are ditches, as I said, on both sides. The one that I think we talk about the most often that the scripture does talk about, the Romans 5, Romans 6 thing. I'll continue in sin that grace may increase. It's a big deal. I don't want to sweep past it quickly. In fact, it seems like in Romans 5 and 6, some of those in Rome were arguing that the more I sin, the more it really just shows how great God's grace is. So my sin is a good thing. That's how contrived we can get. And the Bible warns against that. The book of Hebrews warns against. If you go on sinning willfully, thinking that God's grace will continue to cover you, then all that's left is the terrifying expectation of judgment. So one ditch is, because God's grace is so great, I don't have to obey. I can be spiritual, but not religious. The other side is vital too. In fact, you said in the question, how does one fall from grace? That's a Bible statement. It's found in Galatians 5 verse 4, but the context was the opposite problem. Justification by law. You've been severed from Christ. And he's talking about these Judaizing teachers who wanted the Gentiles to do all of these things that they felt were needed. You are seeking to be justified by law, and if that's what you're doing, then you have fallen from grace. And if you go back and look, that's a big deal in this letter, chapter 221. He said, I do not nullify the grace of God, Galatians 221, for if righteousness comes through law-keeping, through accomplishment, we say things like through performance, through church attendance record, these kinds of things, then Christ died needlessly. So there's the other extreme. God's grace made salvation possible for me, but I'm doing all the work. God's grace got me started down this path, but, and no one says this out loud, but the longer I'm a Christian, the better I do, the less I really need God's grace. Maybe that can Mm -hmm. be put on someone else because I'm doing so well. I would say we need to be very careful of that. The Mm -hmm. longer you're a Christian, the more indebted you should feel to God and the more thankful we should be for God's grace. So you talk about how do we fall from grace? Two ditches. One is my conduct doesn't matter because God's grace is sovereign. That's a mistake. And it Mm -hmm. misses the faith of Abraham. And like David said, like the faith of everybody who's ever been faithful in all of scripture. But the theme of the New Testament letters was the Judaizing influence that sought justification by accomplishment of law as the proof of who is saved. And that is not a road you want to travel because there's only a curse at the end. If your score without God's grace determines pass or fail. So both sides, and they both have to be talked about equally. Yeah. If you're putting your faith in yourself, that's a very arrogant gospel. You're going to be lost every time. If you're just basing it upon your works and not the grace of Christ, then what do you need Christ for? Right. In the end, we are saved by the grace of Christ. There is a particular standard 
that he expects us to live by. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's what we're supposed to be striving to do. We're supposed to excel still more in that, right? <laughs> First Thessalonians in chapter 4 and verse 1. The more we study Christ, the more we study the gospel, the more we're going to be striving to be good and to do good. We understand the concept when it applies to inheritance or to scholarship. Yeah. We should easily be able to understand that as it applies to the topic of inheritance in the scriptures and our salvation in the Lord. It's interesting that you're talking about this as an inheritance. I'll go ahead and tell you my bias on this is family or relationship. I think it goes hand in glove with what you're talking about there. Who has the ability to make a claim on your inheritance? It's people who are in my family. The reason they have that claim is because we have a relationship. I think Christianity is relational. It has everything to do with your relationship with God grace is the favor that you get from God because you're in relationship. Does that make sense, guys? Yeah, it does. It really comes back to that idea that God would have a relationship with you that before you existed, God went to the greatest of extents. I have my Bible open now to Ephesians chapter one, where it talks about in verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Then it says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, David was saying. In love, it says, he predestined us to adoption, like you're saying, Kenny, as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, Mm -hmm. according to the kind intention of his will. And here's where grace comes in, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Just the point I was making from the beginning, that grace is yeah. introduced in the Gospels of Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavishes on us. All three of us teach and do podcasts, and Dave and I preach about obedience and faithfulness and purity and works. We need to continue to do that. Mm-hmm. We need to continue to make that clear. But everybody out there trying to walk the Christian life, you need to look down and check your feet and see what you're standing upon. If you are standing upon the grace of the great God and the rock foundation that he established before you were born, that allows you to stand there as a part of his family next to him, there Mm -hmm. is no command of God beyond your reach. There is nothing he would ever ask of you. We might even start doing all the Sermon on the Mount stuff, which is pretty challenging (laughs) stuff. But if grace is not behind you, beneath you, around you, if your belief is starting to crack under your feet, and you think that somehow you're just going to go out and do a bunch of good things and make up for it, you are sorely mistaken. And the road to apostasy is riddled with people who knew exactly what to do and could not do it and couldn't even remember why they were trying to do it Right? because they forgot the grace of God is fundamental and we are blessed to be a part of his family. And so I just think gratitude is crucial to everything. Kenny, when you're talking about the relationship and the family. I'd said in the beginning how it's been an issue from the beginning, this sort of misunderstanding and Galatians chapter three sort of deals with it. Yeah. And as he's solving that problem towards the end, he says in verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So there's the relationship, sons of God, part of the family. Verse 27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And so that's that 
family in Christ Jesus, verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Heirs are people who receive the inheritance, not according to their works, but according to the promise of God. Right. Which is why this concept of grace and understanding it in terms of inheritance, I think, solves so many problems. One which Chris brought up in Ephesians chapter 1 is this concept of predestination. It fits perfectly with the idea of inheritance. If people don't understand the concept, they can misapply it and say, Kenny was predetermined to be saved. Chris was not predetermined to be saved. We have no control. Our choices don't matter because we don't really have choice. We don't have free will. And people can go to that end if they don't understand the concept of inheritance and grace. For example, you can receive a scholarship today that was set up by somebody who died 100 years ago. Yeah. They predetermined that everybody will receive this scholarship if they meet criteria A, B, C, and D. And so you can apply and receive it. It's been predestined that you mm-hmm. receive it as long as you meet qualifications A, B, C, and D. The thing that's so special about our inheritance in Christ Jesus is he's the one who's done the work and gives us the blessing of being qualified. All that we have to do is obey the gospel and hear that gospel, believe it, repent of sin, confess Christ, be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. As we read in Colossians chapter three, clothed with Christ. Now we're in that family. We're heirs according to the promise. One of the things that we lose, and I know I lose it, when we look at the epistles and we conceptualize grace, according to the epistles, one of the things that especially Paul is really concerned with is the Judaizing teachers. Look, I don't know about you guys. I don't seem to have any problem with Judaizing teachers. None of the people that I'm around are especially trying to enforce Jewish law. Why is that something important to understand? And how does it frame the arguments that Paul is making, especially in Ephesians and Galatians, about what grace is and why it's easy for them to misapply or misunderstand this idea? That's a great question. There's so much in the New Testament about Judaizing teachers, and they were emphasizing the need for circumcision, the need for festival keeping, and the need for dietary restrictions. And they were, look, if you want to be Christians in Christ, we'll accept the Christ element, but we need you to be just like us. We need you to honor our conscience on this. And there's a lot of language in the New Testament in Galatians in particular, which we're studying here at Lindale, where there's this idea of Christ set you free. These guys want to put you back under bondage. Right. So Christ set you free from justification by that law, which no one was justified by. And they're trying to put you back under, you check these three boxes and then you can go to heaven and you keep them checked. How does that apply to us? One thing you can do is read Romans and read Galatians. Maybe start in Galatians chapter 2, verse 15, and just read Galatians 2 and 3. And every time you see the law, just replace it with the word L-A-W. In fact, a lot of times the translators have added the word the and capitalized law because the context eventually led to the law of Moses. But I think it would do well for a Christian if you're going, it's a lot of great, wonderful, conservative people who will listen to this podcast. and the chances that the listener of this podcast is going to slide off into do whatever and continue in sin and all that is unlikely. Right. So let's see if we can put a little guardrail on the other side. What you might try is read Galatians 2 and 3 and just put law. I am not justified by law. I am justified yeah. by faith. I 
receive the spirit, not by works of law, Galatians 3, 2, but by hearing with faith. And of course, we know that faith includes law and the faith in Christ includes the law of Christ. And David's pointed out a lot of great passages for that. But if I get to a point where the checking of the boxes of law is the proof that I am of the quality of salvation. Right. And I know why we get there, because faith, James 2, does good works. It, It does. Yeah. But we might lose the humility of understanding that on your very best day, chances are you fell woefully short of the kinds of works and sacrifice required to impress God by your deeds. We are still, even in Christ, even in the law of Christ, right? not justified by our ability to keep the law of Christ. So you know what it does? It keeps us very humble. It keeps us every day begging for God's grace, asking him to crush us where pride has gotten in the way. And my point is, If we can get that, we will never have a problem doing the things that God told us to do to the best of our ability, because we are motivated by his saving grace every day. Yeah. The New Testament writers were dealing with the problems of the day, but even when they would deal with the problems of the day, they would provide, I think, my belief, they would provide universal solutions, either in taking us back to the underlying authority, taking us back to Christ, showing us how the things of the Old Testament, like the law was a tutor, or the things of the Old Testament were a shadow fulfilled in Christ. Hebrews chapter 9 talks about that some. And while we may not have to deal with Judaizing teachers very much in this day and age, there's always going to be false teachers, which is what the Judaizing teachers were. And so, the New Testament still outlines for us how to deal with that. And going to Jesus in the gospel is the standard. And having shown and proven that is the standard. Does that in Hebrews, as Chris pointed out, does that in Galatians, several different places in the New Testament where we find that being done. And you see it in the book of Acts as well, as they were going around and dealing with issues like in Acts 15. And so gets us to go back to the authority of the scripture versus the opinion of man mm-hmm. in dealing with those matters. And so today when we have different issues, say, for example, misunderstandings about grace, what do we do? Do we just go to the most popular teacher of the day and let him tell us? Or do we go back to the scriptures and see what Christ says on the topic and see what the scriptures say on the topic? We should. Can we extend grace to others? Is that something that is even possible for us? It requires the most challenging of daily undertakings. The most challenging thing every person does every day is making the day about someone and something other than themselves. (laughs) To the extent that I am at the center of my experiences today and I process them by how fair they are to me, what they mean for me the equity involved on my part. To the extent that I do that, I don't know how I will ever be able to extend the grace of God. Because I'll Mm -hmm. tell you this, if God got up every morning and said, I'm going to deal with Chris purely on what I get out of the deal, Mm -hmm. on how much he accomplishes for me, on how well he serves me, and I'm going to measure the standard against my worthiness. Yeah. How's that going to go? I will be incinerated before this sentence is completed. 
<laughs> God is able, and this was identified in the yeah. person of Jesus who emptied himself. He said, I'm going to give up all of that. I'm going to lower myself below men. I'm going to lift them from below them, from the grave. I'm going to lift them. He made it not about himself. And that's where grace was able to be extended. So we could talk a long time about it, but to the extent that you get up every day and you go, you know what, this is not about me and what I get and what I'm worthy of, though that ought to be, again, humility helps with that part of it as well. I want to be like God today. I want to extend a measure of the kindness, patience, mercy, just a measure of what he gives me every day by thinking of me above himself. And I'm going to extend that. And there's a parable for that where the man was forgiven $7 billion of debt. And he goes out and chokes the guy who owes him three months wages. And that guy ended up thrown in jail for the rest of eternity. God is expecting us to live out a measure of his daily grace which Mm -hmm. is a lot of him focusing on our good above what he's receiving and then live that out to others. And so again, I tell you that the grace of God is the foundation for all good behavior. And without it, there can be no consistent behavior that is good. Yeah. Not only can, we must. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, in in verse 14, for if you forgive men their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. And then that demonstrated beautifully in that parable in Matthew chapter 18, where in verses 21 through following, he gives that description of the masters and the servants there, as Chris pointed out. And then again, at the end of that one, so shall my heavenly father also do to you, talking about the punishment of the person who the servant who did not give grace to the one who owed him. So shall my heavenly father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So not only do you have to do it, you have to do it with the right attitude. Going back to the sort of qualifications of our grace, part of that moral standard that we need to uphold is showing the grace of God to others. If we expect to receive it from God, if we are thankful for it, truly understand it, truly appreciate it, it should be a natural thing for us to extend that to others as well. And the less we appreciate it, the less we understand it, the less we respect it, like the man in the parable in Matthew chapter 18, then the less likely we are to give it and extend it. I think one of the things that, when we start thinking about the Judaizing teachers of the first century in in Galatians and Ephesians, there's a lot of mistakes they make. I think they all come from a place of good intention. I think that they are trying to obey God as best they can or as best they understand. What are some of the mistakes that we really need to sidestep? What would keep us from basically replicating the same mistakes they did? Because I think, again, I don't question their motives. I think they had good motives. I think they put a hedge around the law because it was really important to keep God's law. But one of the things that we see over and over again is Jesus saying something along the lines of, They've got the right ideas, just don't do what they do. So what mistakes do we need to sidestep? Maybe just a couple of simple things to think about. When you read through Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, you find that they made accusations against Jesus that were not. And Jesus said, you need to go back and read the very laws that you're referencing. You're missing the weightier matters of what is just and love and mercy. And the New Testament talks a lot about the idea, James chapter 2, about how mercy has to triumph and 
when you think about God, it's God's mercy upon you that makes the relationship possible. It's yeah. not your ability to do everything right that makes things possible. It's God's unending loving kindness to work with you, to help you through your struggles. To God wants to, if you're drifting, God wants to draw you close and use his love and mercy to help humble you and motivate you to better behavior. The Pharisees did not take that approach with Jesus. They took a, let's kill him. Let's yeah. get him out of the system. Let's reject him. And that's the way that we fix this. But all it really did was it revealed that they did not have heart like God's heart, even though they would say their law keeping proved that they did. They were missing those weightier matters. And that's something I don't care if it's Kenny or David or me or anybody else who's listening. We all have to do that gut check on. Yeah. Truth is very important, but only truth that is sourced in love and that is presented in a way that mirrors the great grace of God in the instructions of the New Testament. A lot of times we don't want to do the work of studying the scriptures to know Jesus. We just want somebody to tell us what we're supposed to know. We want somebody to tell us what we're supposed to believe, and we're going to follow that. And that happens in the church just like any organization. If we want to not go to the left or to the right, it requires a heart for the Lord, for the Holy Spirit, for these scriptures that have been revealed by the Holy Spirit, for us to get into them, study them, and make sure that we are following Jesus first and always. When we get away from that, then we get into the left or right business. And to Chris's point, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus was essentially telling that to the Pharisees before they put him to death. When he's telling the parable of the vine growers in Mark chapter 12, and he says, the vine growers said to one another, this is the heir, verse seven, come and let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. The Pharisees who were there knew that Jesus was talking about them. Yeah. And even the irony there being at the end of the parable, that's exactly what they want to do. They want to take him out of the picture. They want to kill him, but they couldn't because of the crowd and the popularity, that sort of thing. But it, it shouldn't be about following this preacher or following that church. It should be about following the Lord. Yeah. And we have to do the work, number one, of studying the scriptures and also be praying for the discernment. I think the discernment is a huge part of these things. I think what Jesus says about us judging righteously, not judging according to appearance, but judging righteously, doing the work that's required of that and having the wisdom and discernment that is required of that, that goes a long way to solving that problem of joining these different gangs rather than joining the family of God and following after the head, which is Christ Jesus. And how do gang leaders recruit gang members? They're usually looking for the weak-minded. They're usually looking for people who are outcast, people who don't have wisdom and discernment, and people who don't have a family. And that's how they recruit them and get them to join and bring them in. They follow that leader, right? People do the same thing today. And we have to be careful about it. We also have to be careful that we don't do that. Right? I, need exactly. to be, I need to be leading people to, to Jesus, not developing my own following and have my own gang. Right? It's about bringing people to the family of God and yeah. then doing everything we can to teach them and instruct them to have the knowledge and have the discernment to study the scriptures, to know right from wrong, to be able to discern between good and evil, accept what is good and reject that which is not. My kids are between the ages of 12 and 20. When I think about explaining grace to them, one of the things that I struggle with is, especially for my 12-year-old, 
How do I explain this in such a way that my daughter, Abby, can understand what grace is? I think she's old enough to understand a scholarship. If she's not, it's a great time to start teaching her. <laughs> but you can convey that concept of inheritance and or scholarship at a level where they can understand it. And I think a 12-year-old can. Yeah. Then I think you go a long way to establishing all the other things that you want to talk about if you establish that foundation first. I do a lot of color Bible marking. And in the New Testament, I mark grace in yellow. So all throughout the New Testament, I don't use yellow for anything else. So I can do the whole thing there. In the Old Testament, in the Psalms and prophets, particularly in the Psalms, I mark in yellow anything that's about God's glory. And in my mind, I've connected those two ideas that God's grace is God's glory, his awesomeness, his ability. And so one of the things that that needs to be seated in people and our young people and what we're working on with my kids, I have two sets. I have one that's about to be 19, one that's 21 that we're just about processed through. And then I still have two that are 10 and nine at the moment that we're going to be working through. And what we really want them to do is we want them to know God. We want them to see God everywhere. We want them to understand that God is in control of all things. We want them to know that there's nowhere you can go where God is not, that every good blessing now and forever is from the hand of God. In Psalm 139, where David talks about this idea that God searches me and finds me and wherever I go, God is there and he formed my inward parts and this great and beautiful ode to God knows all and can do all and is everywhere. To me, that's a grace message. It Mm -hmm. builds trust. I preached a couple of lessons on Sunday. And in the morning, I just talked about Abraham believing God. He trusted God. The harder things around him got, the more he trusted God. And then in the evening, we saw, therefore, what did he do? He obeyed everything God ever told him to do. And he did so with urgency. To me, all of it goes together, grace and faith and works. But it's all founded on, I want my 12-year-old, 11-year-old, 10-year-old, I want them to see God everywhere and know that everything that happens is under his view. There's no escaping his view. And he is good to us. It's kind of like the Gospels. The Gospels are focused on getting you to believe those kinds of things about Jesus. And then the book of Acts shows what a beautiful life of obedience gets built off of that. Jesus often taught in ways that even 12-year-olds could understand. And so even taking into consideration what we mentioned before about Matthew 18 and the parable, if you want to take it from a parable standpoint, or perhaps a real life example in Luke chapter seven with the sinful woman who is forgiven. And there Jesus had been invited to the Pharisee's house and this sinful woman was there and the Pharisees thinking in his heart, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't allow her to be here. And then Jesus tells that little parable of those who are forgiven little versus those who are forgiven much, and then applies that to the Pharisee and to the sinful woman. He even uses the concept of grace there in verse 42. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? What does grace mean to you? (laughs) I'll go simple here. Thanks for the time. This has been great, man. I really enjoy getting to do this with you two guys. I just made a couple of little lines here that I would share. The words power and judgment came to mind. Number one, it's God's power, not mine. It's God's power to save to infuse with purpose. It's God's power to redeem, to forgive, to use me. That just takes power on God's part to put up with me. 
Grace to me is about God's ability and my desire to live within that ability and according to that ability. So two words. First of all, it's God's power, not mine. And it's God's judgment, not others. Other people do not determine the condition of my heart. God determines the condition of my heart. Other people do not determine if I'm saved or lost. I praise God every day for that, that the God of heaven is the one whose grace will be extended based on his perfect knowledge. He knows everything about your heart, Kenny. He knows every single corner of it. He knows everything about your intentions, if you're genuine or hypocritical, if you truly believe what you say, or if you don't believe what you say. He knows everything about it. And in the end, with all of the grace he has provided and the intentions that it has for your life, when you leave this earth, he will determine if you live by faith or not. Folks, no one else determines that. God determines that. And that's why I love the way the flow of this has gone. We got to get back to God, back to Jesus, back to the gospel, back to flourishing in his goodness, back, like David said, to understanding the one who's offering that inheritance and how wonderful it is because you stand before Jesus Christ on the last day. You do not stand before a parent, a spouse, a preacher, an eldership, a group of guys. You stand before Jesus Christ. And you answer to him because he's the one who has done immeasurable good to make your life worth the while. So I'm thankful that it's God's power, not mine. And I'm thankful that it's God's judgment, not others. I don't exist without the grace of God. I just don't. It's by God's grace we even exist. It's by God's grace that we know him. It's by God's grace that when we reject him, He provides the way for us to come back to him. Mm -hmm. It is by God's grace that we have hope in this Mm -hmm. life through Christ. There's just the real sense in which it means everything, which is why the subject is so valuable and important and why we need to be studying it throughout our lives. I just want to read Colossians chapter one and verse 13. It says, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's where we were in sin and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's by his grace. Mm -hmm. Verse 15. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation for by him, all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. Going back to Jesus, where Chris started this thing and graces everything in Christ Jesus. What did I miss, fellas? He <laughs> sent us a few questions to look at, which I did yeah. look at ahead of time today, which I think is progress in my <laughs> personal growth. Your last question, what's good about God's grace? I was just jotting down some things before we started, and I put nothing. There's nothing good. It's all amazing. It's beyond the discussion. I know what you mean, good. But good is good, but God is so far beyond. And I love life. I love the process of getting up every day, just reaching out to find more about God. There's always more. And he's always there somewhere. And I love the way God has revealed himself to us in scripture and in providence and in the stars in the sky. 
And yet he's revealed himself to be of such a size that it's like the telescopes we create. One day we're going to get to the end of the known universe right now. You just find there was something that you didn't know. It's bigger, it's greater. And I just cannot commend enough every listener to, I guess, to go with the words of the Apostle Paul, I commend you to the word of God's grace, because it's going to be the amazing thing that helps you become anything and everything God wants you to be. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And so that takes care of one side, and not accepting immorality in our life. Grace teaches us that. Looking for the blessed hope and appearing in the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. We as Christians are not saying those good deeds are what earn our way into heaven. God's grace has instructed us that being saved by his grace, it impassions us to those good deeds, gives us the desire to serve him and to do so zealously. And just appreciate that section in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 through 14 so much because it gives us I think that proper balance and shows us that grace is always teaching us if we're opening our eyes and and ears and heart to see it. Amen. Guys, I appreciate you talking to me about this. I really appreciate what you had to say about grace. I appreciate who you guys are. It's been a privilege to get to know you guys even better. I am grateful to call you guys friends. So thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah, I love you, bud. Enjoy the time with you guys. Thank you so much for joining in today. If you enjoyed this program, consider sharing it with your family and your friends. As always, you can go to excelstillmore.life to sign up for the email, order the three-month journal, or just catch up on old episodes. And also, if you are looking for financial advice or future planning, give John Cunningham a call today, 205-913-1720. And remember this, whatever you choose to do today in the name of the Lord Jesus, excel still more.